Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always, my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, David J. Halperin. David uh, is a professor of religious studies from UNC Chapel Hill, and he is now retired. And he is also the author of Intimate Alien, the hidden story of the UFO. So David, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, David, why don't we start at the beginning as we were just talking about, you actually began your career in UFOs as a teen UFOologist. So could you maybe give a bit of a background and how you found yourself going from, you know, uh, Jewish studies to writing about UFOs and aliens and what this means for the United States and culture and everything? Okay, I do not know whether I was a ufologist first or a Judaicist first. I don't know. I wouldn't be I, I, I wouldn't be so bold as to call myself a Judaic scholar at age twelve. But I do remember as I, I uh, uh, when I was five and six years old, I read the Bible or the Old Testament, which was the Bible we had at our at our home, and I remember telling my mother that I read something very scary in the Bible about a great wind come out of the north and fire flashing up in the midst of the wind. And this, I realized several years afterwards, was the beginning of the vision of the book of Ezekiel which some have the vision of the wheels. That was perhaps by the beginning of my interest in the Bible and in Jewish things. And then I got into UFOs, or flying saucers, we used to call them, when I was in eighth grade writing a extra credit paper for a science class with a friend, and we went to the public library of Levittown, Pennsylvania, and we looked in the card catalog. I don't know how many of your listeners have ever seen a card catalog, but we looked in the card catalog for flying saucers. We were going to write about life on other planets, and we thought we really ought to deal with flying saucers. And there were three books on flying saucers. One of them was Carl Jung's Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the skies, which at age 12, I could not make head or tail out of. And another book by Gray Barker called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And I took that book home and started reading it and I wanted to hide under my bed that it was so scary. I will not give you a blow-by-blow account of all the scary stuff in this, I would almost call it an anti-gospel, but the essential story 
was uh, the central story, the focus, was of a UFO researcher in Bridgeport, Connecticut, named Albert K. Bender, who solved the mystery of the flying saucers. And three men in black visited him and terrified him into silence. Now, this story, which probably to most of your listeners sounds utterly fantastic, seemed to me thoroughly plausible. Partly, of course, because I was 12 years old, but there were certain specific things that I wrote about in the book that made me particularly susceptible to believing this. And I came away, as did many of Gray Barker's readers, with the sense that Bender had solved the UFO mystery. I could solve it, too. And I set about doing just that. Could we maybe talk a little bit before we get into that about UFOs and antiquity and UFOs and the Bible? And and is this a common thing that people have attributed to ancient texts? Yes. I mean, in those days, we didn't know ancient aliens as the buzzword. But yeah, people knew Ezekiel, often not from Ezekiel himself, the, the, the biblical story but from the spiritual that was based on it. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. And when flying wheels began to be reported in American skies in 1947, coincidentally the year that I was born, it it wasn't long before people began to remember that Ezekiel too had seen the wheel, and to wonder whether the modern wheels and Ezekiel's wheels might not be the same thing. That's quite interesting. And and then we could talk a little bit later how that transmogrified, but I just wanted to start because you yourself had started with the uh, with the Bible, with the Torah. Uh, oh, no, the Tanakh, obviously. Uh, so where what happened when you were a teen? Like maybe you could set the scene about what was going on in the late 50s, early 60s about this amateur UFO community. How did it function? How did this relate to later counterculture stuff? I don't know if I can answer your third question about how it related to the later counterculture stuff. I don't think there was any direct genetic connection. But I can talk a little bit about the teen UFO UFO world that I was part of. First of all, it was almost exclusively a male world. There were one or two teenage girls involved with it, but very, very few. Overwhelmingly, we were boys. I do not know whether I can generalize from myself and say dateless boys, but certainly that was the case with me. And 
once I got into UFOs, I became part of a correspondence network of teenagers, teenage boys, very much like myself. And we formed a kind of invisible college, though we didn't know the phrase, of boys who set aside the standard teenage pleasures of dances and parties and dates to pursue a scorned and unrecognized truth that might have the greatest implications for the country and for the world. We saw ourselves as very special, as pioneers, indeed mocked at present. But sooner or later, the world would recognize that we had seen the danger, perhaps, or perhaps the salvation approaching before anyone else did. And we, I mean, I, I lived for those letters. I lived for that correspondence. Of course, when I went, when I went to college, I set it aside, and instead began to specialize in the visions of Ezekiel. Do you think this interest in UFOs was related to the existential framing that defined your what was going on in American politics in the 50s and the 60s? Constant talk of nuclear war. You know, the other thing that happened in 1947, of course, was the introduction of the National Security Act. America, you know, is nuclear superpower. How would you place what was going on in the, in the early UFO community in this larger context? In my own opinion, and this is the essential claim of my book that the UFOs were a representation of the collective death that for the first time seemed possible. The flying saucers as a cultural phenomenon had their start in June 1947. And that was the same month that the doomsday clock first appeared on the bulletin of the atomic scientists. And the crash at Roswell, New Mexico, which took place, or the incident that gave rise to the, to the mythology about it, took place in the summer of 1947, although it, it didn't achieve notoriety until about 1979 or 1980, that this was associated with the same military wing, the same part of the military wing that had dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I think that the UFO was interwoven with death from the very beginning. 
And Would you with, say the same about the wheel imagery in Ezekiel? Were, were those are those comparable images of of quote unquote UFOs, or are they just you would say they're you know totally unconscious? Because you talk a bit about Jung and this notion of collective unconscious, and, and yeah. maybe we could talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, well, I usually shock people by saying that I think Ezekiel did see a UFO, but I do not mean by that that he saw a spaceship. I mean by that, that he had an encounter. And I believe, you know, that what, that what we have in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, is in fact the writing of a man named Ezekiel who did live in Babylonia around the beginning of the 6th century BCE. That he had an encounter with something from his unconscious that he himself did not understand. And the way he conventionalized it was to call it visions of God. We have encounters with something we do not understand, and we conventionalize it by calling it interplanetary spaceships. Because really, that is the, the interplanetary spaceship is our only model for alienness. That's the way we express it. And therefore, that's the label we attach to something which we know, of which we know only that it's other and alien. And to me, the other and the alien come from within us. What, do you, what does that say about where society has come where humanity has come, I guess that that, uh, and I, I'm thinking about you know not just the phenomenon of UFOs in contemporary understanding, but this this whole ancient alien, which is something you you alluded to earlier, this ancient alien phenomenon, the show on the History Channel, and this this intention to kind of look back at strange events in texts like the Bible or uh, in in other sources and uh, attribute those where they would have been attributed to a divine, generally probably a divine, you know, something, some body, some being uh, out there supernaturally, where, where now it's, it's, there's this need to focus it, it through the lens of aliens and the UFOs. And it's, it's you know, in, in some sense, I guess, uh, meant to be more scientific-seeming than, than a religious explanation, but it's still in this realm of myth and, and kind of, you know, legendary stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we now have a dichotomy of science and religion. A few centuries ago, there wasn't that dichotomy. A few centuries ago, scientifically inclined people understood themselves as performing a religious act, as, as deciphering the creator's work. Okay, but now... We set the two apart. And so I think a lot of people are not comfortable with seeing Ezekiel's visions of God actually as visions of God, but rather want to give them a technological, what's the word, a, te a technological Explanation. cast. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I think that I, I think the fundamental uh, impulse is religious, and I would say it's perhaps 
an expression of the real awareness that there is something in us, something that's been with our history since we became human beings that is alien to us, alien in the sense not of space alien, but alien to our normal waking consciousness. Is that what someone like Jung tried to explore? Is that what, what they were get, he was getting at? Absolutely. And so this is basically what, what the connection between your training in religious studies is that this is sort of the spiritual impulse that is inherent in human beings, and it's expressed sometimes in a longing for God or an identification with God, and sometimes it's expressed in you see a flying saucer. Yeah. I mean, my position is that a UFO encounter is a bona fide religious experience, and that the UFO lore is a religious myth. I, and I use the word myth in the Jungian sense, not as something that's false, the way we normally say, say oh, that's just a myth. No, a myth is a collective dream of the species that's profoundly true. And, and when in 1958, when Jung published his book, the last book he published on a modern myth of things seen in the skies, namely UFOs. He wasn't saying, oh, this is all bunk. He's saying, people, this is something important. We've got a myth that's developing right in front of our eyes and that we can analyze how it plays out in the fragmented awareness of the of the world of the cold war and i think that brings us pretty naturally to abductions which you spent quite a bit of time on yeah. in the book so so why why are abductions such an important element of this myth and and what do they tell us about the moment in which they emerge and and maybe you could also connect this of course to like <laughs> was Enoch abducted? <laughs> was Methuselah abducted? Um, because I, what what I've always found so com compelling about aliens is are the an ancient antecedents. I, I maybe to just put my cards on the table. I went to Solomon Schechter. I went to JTS, and so I have a degree in Jewish history, and so I read a lot of Bible and the original, you know, biblical Hebrew, and so I, I find it just very interesting these resonances with these texts from antiquity. So I'd love to hear, you know the concept of abduction and how this plays into your argument. Well, I mean, I, 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 I know of, uh, I know of one biblical figure who was, who I think was definitely abducted. And that's actually in the new Testament rather than the old, this is St. Paul. Right. Who in, in second right. Corinthians speaks very strangely of a man in Christ who was snatched up into the third heaven. And there he saw things that cannot be described, that words will not cannot utter. And I, I have written on Paul as a UFO abductee, not meaning he was kidnapped by spaceships, but that he had that experience of being snatched away. That I think is manifesting itself in modern guise 
in the UFO abduction tradition, or I should say was manifesting itself, because the heyday of the UFO abductions was in the 1990s. And although I suppose they are still happening, they are certainly not in the spotlight. Uh, you know, the, the, the 2020 documentary by uh, James Fox, the, the phenomenon, which made the case for the, the UFOs, doesn't even mention abductions. Wow, that's really interesting. That's all I remember as a kid, that movie like the, the fire something in the in the middle of the of the forest and and what does this have to do? Why did abductions become popular when the Cold War ended? You know, is there a shift in UFOlogy at that moment and why? Yeah, they I think it 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 somewhat antedates the end of the Cold War. I mean, the abduct the one of the phenomena that really seems to occur across the board with UFOs is a certain time lag between the, uh, let's say, the seed of a belief, the seed of a, of a widespread experience, and the blossoming of it. Uh, the I mean, the, the the Roswell is one case that, yeah, the original event at Roswell happened in 1947, but it didn't become famous for another uh, 30 years or so. Similarly, the abductions f- began, their seed, as it were, was in, I would say, 1964. And uh, the, the, uh, I can explain in a moment why I pick that date and not a couple of other options, that in 1964, a New Hampshire couple named Betty and Barney Hill entered hypnotic therapy with a very distinguished Boston psychiatrist, the aim of which was to get to the bottom of an experience that they remembered having had with a UFO uh, in 1961, okay, and the, you know they knew they'd seen a UFO. They remembered some details of it, but they had the sense there was something more, and this something more was causing all sorts of more or less serious medical problems for the husband, who was black. The wife was white, and I think that is crucial. Sixty-four was the Civil Rights Act, of course, right? That—that's oh, what immediately yeah. comes to mind. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, uh, and that from 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 the transcripts of of the tapes made by the psychiatrist, it's clear that that particularly the husband that 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 much of his much of his mental energy was spent negotiating how to deal with a potentially hostile but often friendly world. What do people think when they see him with his white wife? And he, he, he has to continually wonder, are they being friendly? Are they being uh, critical? Anyway, he remembers having been abducted in the middle of the night and taken aboard an alien craft which, to me, 
is a recapitulation of what happened to his ancestors in the 18th century. And that I think the abduction myth enters the culture as a reenactment of the primordial crime of our culture. And paradoxically, those who re-experience it being taken onto alien craft and subjected to bizarre and seemingly inexplicable examinations, the overwhelming majority are white, as if expiating the crime of our ancestors. So this also, of course, leads to the nation of Islam. Could you talk about the UFO and and that myth, as long as we're talking about race and UFO? I do so with some hesitation, because I do not have expertise in it, and I need to refer you to a book by a very fine scholar, Stephen Finley, who has just recently published on UFOs in the Nation of Islam. The mother wheel, as they call it, figures prominently. The pilots are not aliens in our sense of the word, but black scientists coming from Mars or from some of the other planets. Because the nation of Islam imagines the other planets as being the home of black human civilizations. In doing so, they mirror, I would say, the fantasies of what are called the contactees back in the 1950s, in which the planets of the solar system are inhabited by Caucasian civilizations, as if there's a battle over which race is going to to, uh, inhabit the planets. And by the way, there is a very, very beautiful book by an African-American abductee, a woman who sort of resolves the tension by saying that on Mars, Mars is a majority black planet, but there is a substantial white minority, and they get along excellently. With, with 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 the blacks now that she has this book has a very ironic very peaceable message the nation of islam tends rather to see the ufo's as instruments that will instruments of justice and retribution and where you can see the another I mean, it's like really a a hall of mirrors where you see another mirror of this fantasy is in the movie Independence Day. Have you seen that? I saw it opening night on July 2nd, 1996, I think it was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, this takes the myth of of the mother wheel and again inverts it the wheel is no longer 
an instrument of justice, but of simple blind destruction. And it is defeated by a team of a black and a Jew whose Jewishness is insisted upon throughout the movie. Do you remember that line? Yeah, of where, course. Uh, yeah. The, where the, the, the Jewish computer whiz's father assembles yeah, a, Judd a Hirsch, prayer circle. Right? Yeah, yeah, Judd Hirsch. Yeah. He assembles a prayer circle, and the Secretary of Defense, I think, is he says, invited I'm not to Jewish, join. and he goes, nobody's perfect, right? Right. Which, yeah. we all, which, which is, of course, a tribute to the end of Some Like It Hot, but it also illustrates the theme of the movie that a Jew and a black work together under the leadership of an American president in order to defeat this menace. So here we have UFOs taking on one set of meanings for the nation of Islam, and then in one of the most popular blockbusters of the 1990s, inverted. Well, and very, very um, much an embodiment of the 1990s multiculturalism, you know, this post-Cold War melting pot, uh, liberal end of history America as well, which is that Absolutely. we're all going to get together and we're going to defeat anything that comes in our way. So it's a perfect combination of like American imperial fantasy with American, you know, multicultural fantasy in, in one beautiful package reflected through the UFO. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all bound together by it, which I think the Betty and Barney Hill story. I don't know if you've ever seen that. There was a, a t, it, it became widely known through a TV movie in 1975, the UFO incident, which was, I think, popular precisely because the white and the black together are facing the menace of the unknown alien. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founders level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. How did the production story proceed over the 60s and the 70s? And because you had mentioned that Roswell becomes big in 75. So what happens then to make Roswell become this, like, one of the most influential and resonant American myths of the last half of the 20th century into the 21st? What is going on that allows that to happen? And how does the abduction notion develop over time okay well roswell and abduction i think are two different things but they occur at the same time which is inter interestingly enough in the 70s with the, the 75 movie and the 75 roswell introduction maybe they're separate yeah. feel free to talk about them separately i'm a i'm always looking for connections <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know I, I i i don't know that i can point to any event in the what I would call the real world. Of, well, well, it's the end of Vietnam. 
that's what comes to mind, yeah. right? 75 is when the U.S. fully disengages from Vietnam, finally. Right. And when uh, and, and the uh, Roswell myth takes off in really in 1979, 1980, and perhaps we could associate it with the energy crisis. But I, 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 I don't, it, it, it seems to me that the UFO myth has a certain internal logic of its own that plays itself out. And it's not always, you know, you can always find correlations, but I'm not sure if they really illuminate it. I mean, what happened? I I mean, I can tell you in one sense what happened with Roswell, that what what had been what what actually happened in 1947 was that some sort of debris was found on a ranch. Uh, I think it was about 80 miles from the Army Air, the Roswell Army Airfield. And just what the debris is has never been totally cleared up. But I mean, it was clearly nothing interstellar. I mean, people remembered that there was scotch tape in it and there were peculiar markings on it. Uh, it's exactly what happened in Roswell really, really requires some illumination. But in any case, it, 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 it was very quickly forgotten. And then in 19, I think it was in 79, maybe it was 78, a ufologist named Stanton Friedman was giving a lecture, and a couple approached him, telling him that that they had heard a story from a man they knew who had died, who was present when the UFO crashed at Roswell. And it was not just a matter of debris. Before 1978, all we, all, all Roswell was associated with was was debris, but there were corpses, and there was also a team of archaeologists. They, the, the 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 woman who was talking to Friedman thought from the University of Pennsylvania, who happened to be present, and then along came the military and shooed everybody away, and collected the fragments for themselves. And Friedman told one of his other, he gave this scoop to another ufologist who wrote a book about it that came out in 1980, and that book resounded. And the story grew increasingly elaborate. The Air Force tried to debunk it, Generally, people did not take them too seriously. And we are left with this residue of wonder about what those spaceship, what those vehicles were, and what those bodies were. And to me, this is a myth symbolizing the state of the human race, that in our hubris, we aim for the skies. And yet, like Lucifer in the book of Isaiah. Or Icarus, right? Or Icarus. This is a... Or Icarus, yes. Icarus is a very good parallel. 
I hope I get an A in this class. <laughs> <laughs> the UFOs is myth, yes. Icarus is a very good parallel. But I but my but my mind my mind goes to Isaiah to no uh, uh, to uh, to Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Thou saidst, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set my throne above the stars of God. Yet thou shalt be hurled down to hell, to the uttermost parts of the pit. And that's what happens to these arrogant children. Because look, humanoid beings with huge heads. What is that? That's a child. These arrogant children who think they control the secrets of nature and control them just enough to blow themselves up and destroy the world. Well, this to me is very early 1980s, you know, beyond correlation. I mean, this was the language of the second Cold War and early Reagan. You know, this is the language of the strate- language of the Strategic Defense Initiative. This was the language of Star Wars. This is the era of a movie named Star Wars. So that it's very right. interesting then that that, that uh, emerged at that time. And then you get this coming together with sort of like Gen X indie culture, which it becomes very big amongst sort of the post-hippie generation. You know, Ken Lane, people like that uh, are, are writing about this. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing that that comes... Um, Pop becomes popular in the eighties, and then really explodes with the X Files in the nineties. And oh, the yeah, X-Files. let's talk about the X Files a little bit. Yeah. I think that leads naturally into there. Okay, well, there we have the heritage of Gray Barker, with his "They knew too much about flying saucers," and his three men in black. And once again, we've got that lag time. Let's call it the. Le- I, I couldn't find the phrase earlier, but let's call it the latency period, where Barker publishes his book in 1956, and in 1997, it comes to the silver screen. And about the same time, the, the X-Files, which is already prepped by a year, years of distrust of government ever since Watergate to see government as sinister and suppressing. And in some ways, actually, this was actually, this was pointed out to me by a film scholar, Barna Donovan, that the X-Files and the Men in Black movies are two sides of the same coin, that the Men in Black movies, the Men in Black are heroes. And in the X-Files, well, you don't have the men in black because, I mean, it would be completely absurd, really, that, you know, the the, the motto of the X-Files is don't trust anybody. Yeah, it's more, but, it's, it's more Oliver Stone, in a sense, than, yeah. than it's Oliver Stone meets aliens. You know, there's a whole yeah. cigarette smoking man is so clearly X, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't trust anybody. So the suppressors of the truth are not going to wear uniforms telling you we're the suppressors of the truth. So the three men in black, as such, can't function there. But it's the same motif, the motif of those who won't let you know. Something that's not necessarily salvational information, but nonetheless essential for you to know. 
You know, you will find many people who contemplate, they look at UFOs, and they say, look, we're in a post-religious age. People are scared. They're looking for saviors to come down and rescue them. And there may be some truth to that, but it seems to me that's only part of the truth, because the UFO message is not all that encouraging. The Roswell pilots can't save themselves, much less us. One thing I wanted to ask, and then I know Derek has a question, is you mentioned earlier how alien uh, abduction stories become very big in the 90s, or at the least the 90s was the last moment of that. Why do you think that is? And then we'll get to Derek's question. Well, I think among other things, it's... Oh, okay, how, how, how shall I put this? It's... I gave one cha- title of one chapter of my book, The Lure of the Unremembered, that it's a fascination with the unremembered, which had been big a few years earlier in connection with childhood sexual abuse. I mean, it's really the same theme, isn't it, that, that, that you were abused at some point in the past whether by your parents or by UFO aliens. And now you must heal by recovering the memory of that. And that the, 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 the heyday of the recovered memories of abuse movement was in the late 80s. The heyday of abductions was in the particularly the early 90s. So I think there's a somewhat delayed influence there. And it's very easy for me to see how that works. I mean, in the early 90s, I read about so-and-so who undergoes hypnosis and recovers memories of awful things being done to her, often it is, by these space beings. And I read that and I say, hmm, that's fantastic, but it makes sense. I mean, don't we know that people repress memories of sexual abuse? and that those are recovered. And then, of course, the whole thing about recovered memories explodes. The culture turns around and says it's all nonsense, in my own opinion, unjustly. I think that there was much more to the whole recovered memory business than they're normally given, than it's normally given credit for. But I think that the prior popularity of that idea helped condition the popularity of UFO abductions. And both of these perhaps can go back to a somewhat earlier cultural transformation. And that's how we regarded psychotherapy. In the 1950s, psychotherapy was seen as something faintly ridiculous. Just think of uh, Lucy Van Pelt in, in the Peanuts comic strip with her psychiatric help, Five Cents Lemonade Stand. Then around 1980, we start getting a very different picture. And here I would look to the movie Ordinary People. And I mean, contrast that with another, like go back to the beginning of the 70s, Harold and Maud, where the psychotherapist is a, is pretentious and absurd, and versus 1980, where the psychotherapist is good old Judd Hirsch, who smokes cigarettes, talks ordinary language, and really helps you. 
And I think that transformation of how psychotherapy was regarded and what goes on in the therapist's office laid the groundwork for eventually the abduction, which is really the abduction. And if you watch that, that TV show about the hills from 75, you see that same theme there, that there are really two locations of the action. One of them is aboard the spaceship, and the other is in the therapist's office, where the experiencer is starting to remember. And this same sort of two-level portrayal, you find it in, uh, what what was was the date of it? I think 2010, The Fourth Kind. So one question before we get to Derek's is why did all these myths in the 90s involve rural America? Or at least as I remember it, it was primarily rural Americans getting abducted and this is like the urbane elite would look down on them as kind of bumpkins. Is that a misremembering or is there something more there? And then we could get to Derek's question. I won't say misremembering, but it's not as I remember. I think the great guru of the abduction movement what well, was Bud Hopkins, and his most famous incident was the Brooklyn Bridge abduction of a of, of a New Yorker. I, I, I'm going to insert a plug here, if I may, rather briefly, that Bud Hopkins's former wife, Carol Rainey, published on the web some brilliant reminiscences of what life was like at the center of the abduction movement. And she was working on a memoir which would have told the whole story, but tragically, she died in September, which to me is one of the great losses. Besides that she was a wonderful person, that uh, what she had to tell was just amazing. But she did publish those fragments, and I can send you the links to them. So, David, the part of the reason we wanted to do this episode and invite you on was to be, talk about this recent turn in the U.S. government towards, I guess, more open acknowledgement of, of the UFO phenomenon. There have been hearings, there have been, you know, uh, documents released. As you've observed this, as somebody who has studied this this issue uh, fairly extensively written a book about it. Uh, as you've observed what's been going on recently with this in, in Congress and, 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 you know, in other parts of the U.S. government, what's your take, for, take away from, from this in terms of why all of a sudden we're having these conversations and uh, it seems like the government is somehow being more uh, open about this stuff? Okay, I'm going to, this is, what I'm about to say is pure speculation, all right? That's what we love here. <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump. Okay. Now, having <laughs> that was the that's cause the, of and solution to all of life's problems. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that I, I, I believe that the seismic event of Trump's election in 2016, I think it reset the dial or reset something on UFOs. And the first sign of this was not in the government, but on the front page of the New York Times in December 2017. 
that and I found out about this from my my my, my literary agent and also from the editor at Stanford University Press that had just acquired my book Intimate Alien that they both let sent me links to a New York Sunday Times front page pair of articles, one on a government program to investigate UFOs and the other on UFO encounters from earlier years, particularly 2004. And I was completely, as our cousins across the pond say, gobsmacked by this, that the New York Times, the old gray lady, had always looked down her nose upon this UFO nonsense. And now it was front page news. And to this day, I do not know precisely what went into that transformation. But since then, the New York Times has been almost nakedly pro-UFO. One of our leading public intellectuals, Ross Douthat, has stated as a matter of simple fact that the government is hiding weird evidence of UFOs. So you see, not all conspiracy theories are irrational just because the conspiracy theories around the the 2020 election are irrational. Some are, are very well grounded. And I'm thinking, this is the New York Times. Uh, okay, that, this is the barometer of the an overwhelming rise in cultural respectability. What has this to do with Donald Trump? I am not entirely sure, but I am going to guess that just as the UFOs began to surge in 1947 in response to our awareness we could blow up the world, they began again to surge in 2017 in response to the awareness that we have a real species-threatening problem of climate change. And now we have a president who aggressively denies that there is anything that needs to be done about this. When the New York Times published its revelations, it seemed to me there was a pattern in how the media responded. On Fox News, they were greeted with mockery. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders whom you recall as at one point Trump's spokesperson, couldn't you say the word UFO without snickering? By contrast, the liberal East Coast media, Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, went in for the story. On NPR TV, Ralph Blumenthal, who was one of the authors of the New York Times article, made the revelation that there had been UFO crashes where mysterious substances had been recovered that are utterly unknown to science. This was in 2017. As of 2023, we've heard no more about these mysterious substances. Although, as you well know, whistleblowers keep coming forward to say 
that relics of UFOs have been found. New York Magazine at one point, I think, put it nicely that every epoch gets the abduction myth it deserves. Ours is E.T. versus Donald Trump. And my sense is that the rise of the E.T. myth is as a reaction to the rise of Donald Trump. And then, of course, we had a genuine alien invasion by the coronavirus, which again gave a plausibility to the idea that alien things were about to break forth upon us. I've, I've, I've admitted this is a lot of speculation, but can I show you? Yes, The Week a, magazine. Yeah. The cover of The Week. This is from, what is it, June 14th, 2019. And it's called Taking UFOs Seriously. And you see this jet plane is being buzzed by a UFO piloted by two friendly aliens. Now, what do you see down here? I see an orange blob, but what is it? Baby Trump. Got it. The baby Trump balloon that had been <laughs> launched in England the year before. Gentlemen and ladies and gentlemen of your audience, I would submit this as evidence that Donald Trump is a part of the UFO revival, the renaissance, UFO renaissance of the late 2010s and early 2020s. And it will probably be another few decades before we can entirely or even begin to disentangle the threads that are woven together. That is a perfect place to end. David J. Halperin, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out his intimate alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.